0: your life. Just be true to yourself.
1: It's your life. Just be true to yourself. It's your life.
0: That is something a lot of people forget. You just got to be true to yourself Stop trying to be someone you're not. Stop trying to please people that you're never going to please. And most of all, start at the beginning. Now, today I wanted to talk about information theory and introduce you to that idea more from a technical side, and then we can get into the more philosophical side. So um, I know there's a delay in the chat. So I wanted to ask the chat uh, what uh, they would like me to start with. So, I could start with some news, but really anything you see right now in the media is pretty much paid placement both, from both sides. It makes no sense regurgitating, looking at the past, looking at this, looking at that. It's, it's a hot mess. Now, I have to admit that uh, you know, yesterday I was watching all the footage um, for humans as commodities chapter two, three, and oh, I have to say, watching raw footage of almost three hours really took its toll on me. And I'm someone that has that seen things that it shouldn't phase me, and it really did bother me. And, uh, I, I I just, I couldn't. I felt like I had, you know when you have dead leg and you're sitting in the bed and your leg just hurts? Like, you know, I had that in my arms, in my legs. I just didn't want to do anything. Um, I was just laying in bed trying to sleep all night, literally. And my cat purring on me was not helping. Now, having said that, um, today is pie Day. And I thought I would, Share a nice, fun video. But I'm gonna do that after I take you down a little bit of entertainment. You know, scripts are very, very important. Extremely important. You know, I was actually thinking last night, and no one has actually seen this. So, (laughs) no one's made the connection ah, that's the better way of saying it. No one's made the connection of how ridiculous something is. So let's talk about Lucifer, Satan, for a second. You know, apparently he was God's right-hand man, Right. And he was his first, his most lovely, his most amazing. And he had like an IQ, like nobody's business. He was like like, super smart. He was like the first and the leader of all. Super smart, right? Just keep that in mind. Now, I'm going to give today's example. Putin, not stupid, extremely smart. And he's watching everyone, what, team up to, to, to start war in Ukraine. He's just watching. And then, take you to another realistic one. I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of very important people, and I lay out documents in 2020. <laughs> and I was like, all right. What you are doing right now is this. And I point to a document that the unions had created. I said, you are here. What you just said is that you're doing this. Well, let's flip the page. They said you're going to do this. Are you like following the script? And so as I was mulling that around, I was like, wait a minute. So we have the Bible, right? So the devil knows in the end he's going to lose, but he's doing everything by the book. Just watching it, even though he's really smart, he's just following the book. I'm gonna leave that with you. The devil, right? Satan, evil, knows what the Bible says. In the end, he's toast, but he's following and doing everything it says, knowing that that's his demise. Just a question, rhetorical, I guess. Just think of it. Now, speaking of that, I thought I would, you know, I really miss movie night. I really wanted to watch a movie with you guys. I'm going to play you a soundbite, just a final speech before I, I show you, uh, you know, an explanation of this film. I, I wanted to actually show this film at uh, New Year's Day, but obviously there's no real way and not a lot of people can and I can't stream like a whole film on Rumble. That's just wrong, you know, so I am going to play a clip and then I'm going to play the whole, you know, recap, right from someone. How's that? We'll start with some fun stuff just to kind of get our juices flowing with the things that were said. It's totally fine. All right, now please take a listen, carefully. Now, I'm gonna stop that. I'm gonna show you guys a video. But first, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, a team of highly skilled individuals came together with a mission to take down evil people who were wreaking havoc around the world. They knew that the only way to accomplish this was to infiltrate their inner circles, gain their trust, and gather evidence of their wrongdoing. Over the past two decades, this team of dedicated individuals recruited other individuals and worked tirelessly to gather evidence against such evil, and corrupt people. They traveled the world taking on new identities and blending in with the political elite. They attended secret meetings, eavesdropped on private conversation, hacked every secure server you can even imagine to uncover the truth. As time went on, they amassed a mountain of evidence, and it was more horrific than they thought, more odd than they thought. They had recordings, they had documents and witness testimonies that could bring down governments, but they knew that they couldn't act too soon. The time had to be right. When the world had ears to hear the truth, after 20 long years of planning and preparation, a team was ready to strike. They had coordinated their efforts and were ready to release a treasure trove of evidence simultaneously around the world. But before they did that, they attempted to do so through other means, through unionization almost of honest journalists who got paperwork from one end, one corner of the earth that was talked about but rarely seen. And There was this young man who was a hacker, brilliant man, who started to leak it, almost like make it a Wikipedia of leaks, so stellar that they couldn't even debunk it. I was a tester. I was to start getting feelers out. The goal was to create a domino effect that would bring down every evil person and every single government around the world that did so. Many of them rose to power, not the evil ones, the infiltrators. When the day came, the plan was kicked off without a hitch but the technology and assistance was ripped off. And so fighting fire with fire doesn't always work. So you start with fire and then whoop, you whoop out the water. That's just a story. Here's another story. A story of a billionaire. A billionaire that staged his own death in an airplane, dedicated his life to fight evil and corruption around the world. Here is a recap of this script. Please enjoy.
1: This man's name is one. He is one of the richest billionaires on Earth, definitely not Elon Musk. He basically made his money from living his childhood dream, which is inventing neodymium magnets, a piece of scientific work the world has never seen before. Okay, one doesn't love injustice, he wanted to be like the Batman in Justice League, he loves to help people as he feels that action speaks louder than words. Talking without actually taking actions isn't just worth it. So with the privilege of being a billionaire, one decides to fake his own death and form an anonymous group which was just like the Avengers but without superpowers. This group would help in taking down tyrants and bad people from different countries, people that the world couldn't touch. Let's dive straight into the story, do not touch the exit button till you watch to the end. Sit back relax and enjoy the video. Popularly known as Ryan Reynolds, and anonymously known as one in this American vigilante action thriller called Six Underground. He recruits a team of five people including him, he gives them a numbered nickname. Just like him, this people have no past and are considered dead. So that means they fake their own death and decided to work as ghosts. After they had gone to interrogate the lawyer of a tyrant in Florence, Italy. They are being pursued by gunmans with heavy gun power, 2 who is a spy, had being shot through a window while she was trying to escape and 5 who is actually a doctor can be seen trying to operate on two's gun wound, while the crew were in a hot car chase. Meanwhile, Six is a very skillful driver, he evades the gunman, leading to a lot of car accidents. While they are being pursued by a motorcyclist, Two decides to step up for the crew by firing at the rider while she was still injured. As the chase becomes so intense, One requested that Four help out. Four Another member of the vigilante crew is a Skywalker who is basically good at running past buildings. He helped in taking out some gunmen in the most tragic way, one who had scooped out the eyes of the lawyer then uses his eyeballs to unlock the transmission between their number one target rovich and his four generals number three who is a hitman then helped out four in taking down the remaining gunman but in the process six the fast and furious driver got killed in the most brutal way this made the team devastated they wrapped up his body in an emotional moment they tossed him into the ocean nobody knew nothing about six as close relationships with each members was forbidden It was worse till the extent that they didn't even know each other's name, One wanted it that way, he was like the professor of six skillful vigilantes, just that this time around they weren't robbing banks but fighting for the cause of the people and their nicknames were based on numbers. One then tells the group that they had to find a number 7 to replace 6, the Gray Man. The movie then switches to Falcon Soldier on a mission in Afghanistan, Blaine is actually a sniper man from the Delta Force, on a screwed up mission in Afghanistan, Blaine saw his whole team die, he had the chance to save his teammates by taking a shot but because of the orders from higher authorities, he didn't shoot. This event made Blaine live with guilt for the rest of his military life. While Blaine was thinking about his teammates and the effed-up mission in Afghanistan, one came to him, he tells him that he would have ordered him to pull the trigger, he gives Blaine an opportunity to fight world-class evil leaders, he invites him to the crew as number seven. Blaine who wanted to redeem himself then accepts the offer. Blaine faked his death. A befitting burial with military paparazzi was conducted in honor of the soldier. Blaine was able to witness his own burial as his brother cried uncontrollably. One introduces Seven to the team, he briefs him on the vision of the crew, saying their objective is to take down world leaders who were bad. He reminds Seven that he is dead, so he is going to be restricted from visiting certain cities and any association with his loved ones had to be cut off. One then tells the crew about their next mission and number one target, Rovich Elimov a Turgistan dictator who treated his people as slaves. The team then discussed about the advantages of being dead but not actually dead, like not paying taxes, no criminal records and backstabbing girlfriends, one chipped in saying the most important aspect of being dead and yet still alive is the freedom. He then tells them about the coup he is planning to stage on Rovich, the Turkistan dictator on the day of the dead. He tells them that they had to take out his four generals, which will mess up his day, because they are the most powerful people close to him. Then they have to free Rovich's democracy-loving brother who is held hostage. Then finally hit Rovich and bring back peace to the country. It wasn't going to be an easy mission. But with the help of one's neodymium micro-magnets invention they could probably pull through. Blaine then inquires to know more about Rovich's story. So the movie takes us back to when it all started in Trzestan. People were fleeing the country because of Rovich's military rule. Rovich is so cruel to his people he takes down anyone who tried to rebel against him. One who was still a philanthropist at that time, paid a visit to the Turkestan border, to carry out his good works on the injured and sick citizens. But he was just doing it for the papers and not actually from his heart. Just as he is trying to donate for the cause of the Turkestan people, Rovich launched an airstrike on the border, taking down so many people, young and old. As one watched so many defenseless people die that day, he decided to have a change of heart and actually put his good works into action. He decided to be a good Jeffrey Dahmer and form the anonymous vigilante group that will take down this tyrant leaders once and for all. It is believed that Rovich's philosophy is to use his power to communicate resolve and inspire fear to his enemies. One meets up with Rovich after a stage drama relating to tyrants. He tells him that no matter how a tyrant acts, justice was going to be served as demonstrated in the opera they had just seen. Rovich tells him that heroes always win in operas and drama but it doesn't work that way in real life. One hooks up with a girl he met at the opera and suddenly developed an emotional connection with her. Had sex with her and then ghosted. The movie then switches to the present day, number 4 reveals to Seven on how Murat, Rovich's brother was imprisoned. He tells Seven that number 2 was actually working for Rovich before she was recruited. She had actually ambushed Murat while he was trying to escape, she captured him and then imprisoned him. So part of their mission is to rescue Murat from prison, although he isn't a saint, but he is still manageable. Back to the present day, the most feared dictator, Rovich then ordered his four generals to go over to Las Vegas, where they will meet up with Victor the arms dealer. He tells them to have fun and get drunk after they had completed the mission. One then informs the team that they will be going over to Las Vegas to take down the four generals, he tells them that they had to be careful because Las Vegas has more facial recognition software than anywhere in the world. So they needed to choose their disguises wisely. Be subtle and blend in. At Vegas. After the generals had concluded the arms business with Victor, they decided to have fun in a hotel, party with girls and get wasted. Well, they were actually wasted but in a bad way. Number 2 and 3 had the worst disguise as they dressed as tennis players in one of the biggest events building in Vegas, they go over to the room the generals had lodged. They shot one of them who came to peek through the door after he heard a knock. They shot the remaining two in the most unexpected way ever then proceeded to the other room where the general who knew about the location of Murat was having sex with one of the girls. They held him at gunpoint and then demanded for the location of Murat. After he had revealed the location, he was shot in the head and died while he was still inside a woman. A pleasurable death. One then criticized their disguises saying they dressed like clowns, overlooking his own Vegas biker costume. After the bloody event, 2 and 3 then stirred up an emotional connection as they had sex together. The next morning, 3 tells 2 that he had to go somewhere and needed to speak to somebody. He went over to a hospital to see his mum who is suffering from loss of memory. He tells her about the mission and how he was going to take out bad guys, so he can erase his bad past and write a new one, but his mother wasn't pleased with him as she tagged him a murderer for what he did in the past. 3 originally known as Javi once worked for a mafia guy named Diego, At one mission he killed a little girl's father and suddenly developed guilt towards his actions which made him stop working for Diego. Later that night, as he was about leaving. One sneaked up on him like Bruce Wayne would do to offenders in Gotham. He puts a gun to his head and warns him that he isn't supposed to relate with anyone or have anything to do with them. He tells him that they had sacrificed everything for this mission so he has to respect it. At Turkestan, a furious Robich then addressed his men on the killing of his generals. Since he had to replace the generals, he called out four other people who were next in line. But then throws them off the building, saying it wouldn't be wise to trust those who stood the most to benefit from the death of the generals. So he appointed new people as generals. Meanwhile, as the team prepares to fly to Hong Kong so they can rescue Murat, four narrated to the crew on how he was recruited by one during a failed mission. It was revealed that one doesn't like the word family, so if you are ever stuck up on a mission, he won't come back for you. In the next scene, Rovich travels to his visit his brother in Hong Kong, he asks him if he knows anything about the attack on his generals, but Murat claims not to know anything. Rovich then tells Murat that this attacks on his generals will only increase the intensity of his strikes. He tells Rovich that he would be going back to Turgistan and he had given to Kik, a muscular bodyguard strict orders to harm Murat if anything happens to him. One briefs the team on the mission, it is going to be a penthouse extraction as they are going to rescue Murat from his prison. They were going to use the cranes as the snipers' nest for Seven and then a crossover to escape from the penthouse. On the day of the mission, Two and Three arrived in a Ferrari with masks on, while Four used a zip line to cross over to the penthouse. Seven secured his position on the crane, while Five waits outside of the building for the getaway plan. As Two and Three got inside the building, they released laughing gas in the air as they took down security guards. While on the mission, Three then began flirting with Two, It is then revealed that he had lost one of his mask seals so the laughing gas affected him. He was almost killed by Seven for picking an enemy gun but he was lucky that his mask is actually bulletproof. Four takes down the men safeguarding Murat as he proceeds to rescue him. On their way out they were faced with so many men which wasn't supposed to happen according to the plan. Seven then tells them to grab onto something. He shoots at the pool's glass as the water floods the whole building, wiping out Rovich's men. The team managed to escape using the zip line, but Four wasn't able to make it out on time as he was faced with Dekic, Rovich's bodyguard. One wanted to stick with his philosophy by leaving Four on the mission but in an emotional scene, Seven stopped him saying he is never going to leave his teammate behind again. He steps out of the car position his sniper and then shoots Dekic, hereby saving Four. The next day, after they had completed the mission, Seven got into an argument with One, One tells him that the mission is more important than the man, But Seven wasn't ready to subscribe to that philosophy, so he tells the team that his name is Blaine and he doesn't leave a soldier behind. The team then tell each other their names as they bonded. As they arrived to Jostan, one then hacked the state television as Rovich was getting ready to address the public, hereby giving Murat the floor to preach democracy which inspired the people and led to a revolution. This revolt and riot then made Rovich escape to his private yacht. The team then arrived at the private yacht. They set up their positions as two and three fights off Rovich armed men. One activates his magnetic invention which took out majority of the guards. The ghost team then attacked Rovich's men with the help of One's invention. They proceeded to find Rovich but in the process the yacht began to sink because of an explosion that occurred. Four who was at the upper deck had no chance of escaping because he was surrounded by Rovich's men. They had to pursue Rovich who was trying to escape or risk the mission by saving Four. It became a titanic situation but one had a change of heart and proceeded to save four. Rovich escaped the sinking yacht using a boat. As he transferred to an helicopter, he discovers that it was being piloted by Murat and the ghost team. Rovich begs his brother for mercy but he tells him that it was too late as his sins had caught up with him. Rovich then asked to die with dignity but they dropped him off in a Turjistan refugee camp, where angry citizens rushed him and then beats him to death. After the death of Rovich, Murat was made the new president. While 2 and 3 sparked a relationship, he takes 2 to go see his mother as she embraced him tightly. 4 and 5 spent their time together climbing mountains. While 1 and 7 travels to New York City. 1 sees the woman who he had shared an emotional connection with before he started the vigilante group. He watches her from a distance as she goes over to meet her son, which could possibly be 1's son. The end. Thank you for watching till this point. You are a legend. If you love content,
0: wow. So that is a story. Pretty extravagant, very gory, but in all honesty, the world is pretty gory. I mean, could you imagine if there was a group of politicians around the world that had grown tired of the corruption and deceit that had taken hold in their respective governments? And they rose to power, and they knew that in order to take down the corrupt politicians and all of the networks and those few that managed the many, that they needed to think outside the box and use unconventional methods. Even in the movie, as you see, the people that were fighting for innocent people were not always good people. They were assassins. They were mafia members. Hackers. You name it. So could you imagine if politicians that slowly rose to power over the past you know, four decades hatched a plan that each of them would be pretending to be corrupt, using their wealth and influence to infiltrate the inner circles of corrupt politicians that they were targeting. So wealthy that they would even take down banks by withdrawing their own money and making it pretty visible. They would pretend just to be as greedy and power-hungry and as corrupt as their targets, gaining their trust and loyalty through bribes and favors. Now, if over the years these politicians played a role of the corrupt attending secret meetings, participating in shady deals, and even committing illegal acts, But all the while, they were gathering evidence, learning methods, and how. Recruiting people that were just as frustrated along the way. Building a case that would eventually bring some justice. See? In order to get something like that, you have to work with very trusted law enforcement officials, be extremely transparent, and have prosecutors quietly building cases against them, one by one, and then take it to court, take it to tribunals, and take them to jail. Now, when when an operation like that, as the one of this film called Six Underground, You have to think. Sans the gun, sans, you know, the car chases. I mean, it's pretty feasible. And I guess when other people around the world see actions like that, uh, you know, they follow in the footsteps using innovative and unexpected methods to take down corruption wherever it may be found. And that is how the world becomes a little bit brighter, a little bit fairer, and just a little bit more just. Because in every story of taking down the big guys, it's always the guy, you know, have you seen the movies where the FBI really needs to, I don't know, take out an enemy and they go and they find... This hacker kid, you know, they've been following for a very, very long time, but haven't arrested to see if they'll work for another government or anything like that, right? Kid's a crook, but they hired him anyway because he had the skills. People that have worked with the most vicious, helping launder their money, move their energy, follow their transactions, collect Blackmail, financial blackmail, good people that they kept an eye on and they pull them in when the time is right. Now, that's just a story of a script that's kind of repetitive. But the thing is, nothing they do can actually succeed if the people don't see that and follow suit. See, sometimes it's the person that stands in the gap to inspire others. The person that stands in the gap and takes shots for many, unafraid, hoping that people will see, hey, they're coming for me. And here I am, I'm still standing. Hey, they're attacking me. Here I am, I'm still standing. Hey, they're humiliating me. Here I am, but I'm still standing. Hey, they've knocked my teeth out, knocked me on my knees. They've done obscene things to me. They have taken me to court and now they're using a shady prostitute against me. But I'm still here still standing in the gap for you. See, that's true warrior talk right there. So now we're going to shift gears into science, and believe it or not, maybe it'll give some insight on how data is collected, which, by the way, I would have to say, I would totally, no, I'm going to keep that for another day, actually. Keep my mouth shut on that one. So, to shift gears, let's celebrate a little bit of Pi Day. Pi Day music video. So bad, but so good. Let's go.
2: March 14th is Pi Day. 3.14. March 14th is Pi Day. March 14th is Pi Day, Pi 3.14 On this day we celebrate a number that goes on Forever and ever, I'm talking digits on digits math games and fun, when I'm at school with my teacher It goes 3.14159 pi. Pi is a Greek letter, NMF symbol. You 3 414, just to keep it simple. Pi is never ending. You can never say it all. We celebrate this day. Thanks to Larry Shaw. Pi is
3: irrational. Pi is a constant. Pi is never ending. That's infinite
2: digits. Pi use pie find area. Area of circles. Pi is used find circumference. Distance around circles.
0: More- and that's what's up. It's Pi Day. <laughs> so let's talk about tech. Let's talk about things. Let's talk about information. Information. Now, a lot of people think of data as just a set of crunching numbers. You know, it's quite interesting. Have you ever heard of the Responsible Financial Innovation Act, also called RFIA? Well, the Responsible Financial Innovation Act, RFIA, was a proposed bill in the United States that aimed to establish a regulatory framework of uh, financial technology companies with the goal of promoting innovation while protecting consumers, of course, and financial stability, of course. Now, the RFIA was first introduced in the U.S. Senate in, two, in 2019, right? But has been constantly reintroduced several times since then, And most recently, in 2021, the bill proposed to create um, a regulatory sandbox where fintech companies can test new products and services with a limited number of customers under the supervision of regulators, kind of like beta testing things um, to see how they work. Now, under the RFIA, FinTech companies would also be required to adhere to certain consumer protection and anti-money laundering regulations. And that bill was to establish um, uh, almost like a financial tech company advisory board, right? Um, like a committee to give guidance and recommendations to regulators on emerging tech, but Biden skipped the line and wrote an executive order that's just terrible. Now, what is the potential loophole on these? Well, here's the loopholes and concerns about the effectiveness of this. So, number one, there's limited oversight. While the RFIA proposed, or Biden's executive order, right, proposes a regulatory sandbox for testing new products and services. There are severe concerns that this could lead to limited oversight and potentially harmful products being released in the market. Another thing is regulatory capture. The risk is that regulators may become too close to the financial tech companies that they're overseeing, leading to regulatory capture and a lack of effective oversight. Um, In addition, if you read the executive order and the RFIA, uh, while it proposes that customer protection regulations are in place for these financial tech firms, there are concerns that these um, may not be good enough to protect consumers from harm or overreach. In addition financial tech firms could potentially exploit the differences in regulatory requirements between jurisdictions to gain an advantage over competitors. And last but not least, it's a very limited scope, right? Um, And not to traditional financial institutions. This would create a very uneven playing field and give incumbents or big banks or big fintech companies a huge advantage. So, It is pretty interesting if you think about it, this whole market crash. And there are a lot of people that believe that, you know, we should get into um, um, the new age of quantum tech and implement it in almost every aspect. For example, you know, artificial intelligence, right? A lot of people have been using these chatbots, and you know, obviously, one of the biggest scams that they've done is say, I'm an archangel or I'm a demon to just get all the Bible thumpers with their panties in a twist. A lot of people think that AI cannot merge with man, and um, they believe that there can be a separation in that. Now, in essence, that's not very true because um, AI has already begun um, being implemented in all places by way of predictive analytics, right? Model validation, model training, model selection. I went over this um, last week. It shapes every aspect of your life and everything you do, everything you do. And it's quite fascinating to watch conversations online that say things that uh, I would say aren't really realistic in that sense. And um, a lot of people believe that there is no AI per se. They believe that it's just information being put together and just that's it. That it's information being put together and there's nothing more. Now, there are numerous companies that... Work with artificial intelligence. And many of them, like Neuralink, that work with getting AI technology to merge with man. Now, there is actually a company. How do you say this? So, Hold on. Let me explain it. I think con- contrasting what I want to say may um, help. Okay, let's see. All right. So this, this is from Wired. And I'm going to share this with you so that way you can compare and contrast with what I will show you. You know, um, before I play it, I just want you, you know, I've been. I've been saying for many years, and people that know me personally know this, I, when I was a kid, I fell in love with physics, like in love. I fell in love with physics because it was able to give me provable answers, right? So there were things that I could prove true, right? That it was true, like an axiom, Right? And this is why I loved physics. Even, um, you know, I remember when I was really young, I would say like eight, seven or eight, I would sit there and take these massive books on um, electromagnetic interactions and I learned everything there is to know about EM fields. But the thing is, most of the time, I just felt like I was copying the problems and kind of just working at them. Um, And I still do it. Actually, uh, you know, Sometimes people will catch me, you know, in my family where I sit in the kitchen and I'll just rehash something or try to solve a problem that's unsolvable. Um, and and I say that goes back to having bad input variables, you know, and taking things as standard because they have been passed down throughout time, but may not be accurate. Uh, for example, you know, I don't know, like the circumference of the earth right? or, you know, gravitational pull. I'm a person that believes that there is no gravitron. But anyway, that's my theory, right? Everybody else goes on other theories. So physics, um, for me, are glorified mathematicians. They just apply the math, I guess. And I remember when I TA'd at the physics department, I had so much fun. Um, I had a lot of fun, actually. And the mathematicians... Hmm, would always say, you know, oh, physicists are just bootleg mathematicians. Physicists would say that mathematicians, um, physicists would say that mathematicians are wannabe physicists, but they can't apply things, right? (laughs) Right? But it all comes down to the basic covenants of what you can prove. And that's why I like when I can prove something, right? Everybody does. Like we can prove that one plus one is two, right? We can prove it. And so, um, I remember when I was young, and I went to my nerd schools. I had some really awesome teachers, and um one thing that um I was very good at was pattern recognition, and I uh was really good at computational linguistics that didn't even exist in the early nineties right and um that was like something up and coming for the public. Obviously the military has a lot more, but you know, I digress. Now, as we see Elon, who is not part of the military, right? Uh, has created this idea of being able to have internet on tap. I mean, we saw Google Glass try to do this um, and, you know, provide Um, some segue. Now, I'm going to say this, and you could take the statement as okay or not, but our government has had this technology for a while. Experiments have been done in the past. Most of them were terminated in the late 80s uh, and early 90s. And there are probably new ones um, underway that are a lot more complicated. Now to help you understand i guess information theory which is <laughs> which is which is the foundation of all of these things right um, i wanted you to kind of look at this wired um, discussion about the neuralink brain chip and then we'll talk then we'll talk about the competitor, you know, a competitor. the real competitor The one that's not putting chips, but doing it somehow else, which is a little bit more permanent, which is very similar to a government project that was terminated decades ago. So let's take a look at this.
2: Elon Musk's brain chip company recently pushed back on claims that it violated animal welfare laws a few years ago while testing on monkeys. This year, the company plans to test on human subjects. But when it does, what would this major step mean for brain implant science?
3: Academics like me have conducted clinical trials in people with brain implants. Dr. Paul
2: Niyajukian is a professor of bioengineering and neurosurgery. He directs the Brain Interfacing
3: Laboratory at Stanford for about 20 years now. Academic research brain implants up until this point, more or less, have almost exclusively been with wires. The difference that the N1 has, the Neuralink, it's fully implantable, it is battery powered, it is wireless. All of this is being done over Bluetooth protocol.
2: Let's dive into the science behind Neuralink to understand how exactly human brain chips work.
3: The science behind how these implants work is not that different from how you would go about trying to measure the energy from a double A battery. It's the same principle that we're doing with these brain implants. This is called neuroelectrophysiological recording. When you move your arm to the right, certain sets of neurons are activated in a certain pattern. Listening in to that activity and that pattern, you can predict very quickly which direction the arm is going to move. These are the neurons that are directly wired to your muscle Unless that
2: pathway from the brain to the spinal cord to the muscle is damaged, the way it is in patients with paralysis. That
3: pathway is damaged, then the neural signals, the signals from the brain, aren't going to get down to move the muscles. But in many cases, the signals are still present in the brain. They're just not getting out. So if you reach in and put something that listens in to those neurons, and you know what's happening to the muscle. And that's the goal of a brain implant now let's look at a timeline of brain
2: interface breakthroughs over the years scholars have long been interested in how the brain works so it's important to view these new developments at neuralink as a culmination of breakthroughs by brain machine interface researchers especially in the last few decades for example in 2002 the first demonstration of real-time cursor control in monkeys took place 2008 a monkey controlling a robotic arm in three dimensions fed itself 2012, the first brain-controlled robotic arm by a human. 2017, a human controlled a cursor mentally to type out words and sentences. Dr. Niyajukian was part of this study, as well as the one in 2018, where a human subject mentally controlled a tablet to do things like browse the web, send emails, and play games or music. All that's been done with a couple hundred electrodes. But in 2019, Neuralink, a private company, changed the game when it unveiled a pig named Gertrude with a wireless implant that monitored about 1,000 neurons.
1: The neurons are like wiring. um, And you kind
4: of need an electronic thing to solve an electronic problem.
3: That was a very interesting moment because it signaled to the community that they're serious, they're investing, they're building hardware from scratch, and they're putting it in large animals. For the pig, the electrodes were implanted in somatosensory cortex, allowing them to measure sensory activity, like that of taking a step. Every time that that particular neuron they were listening to fired, you would hear this little pop or click from the audio channel. And so the moment I heard it, right, it's like, oh yeah, hold, they got neurons. You just recognize it instantly. You know what neurons sound like if you've been listening to them for decades. And that's what they were communicating, right? They they were telling the field, we've got neurons, pay attention. And overnight, it seemed the industry
2: took notice. Then, in April of 2021, Neuralink released the so-called mind pong video.
3: Pager was the name. It's a rhesus macaque, which is you know the type of monkey that is very commonly used in this field. Implanted with two of the N1 devices, the Neuralink devices, performing brain control of a cursor on a screen. That's extremely significant because. Here, Neuralink is showing their new hardware, their new device in their hands works in a monkey. That's the level that's necessary to convince the scientific community, to convince the FDA that you're ready to go into human clinical trials. That's the evidence the FDA is looking for. The recording power of the
2: N1 device in pager was eye-opening
3: because of the sheer number of individual electrodes that had been implanted. There was definitely a lot of clever engineering that went into that to build a device that can transmit 2048 electrodes worth of spiking information, right, of, of digital ones and zeros of spikes over a radio wirelessly. And when you have that many channels, the performance that you should be able to get should eclipse what we've been able to do in the academic field. You know, the maximum number of electrodes I've ever recorded from is two to 300. So with all those electrodes,
2: how does a device like the N1 get implanted in a subject's brain?
3: Make no mistake, this is neurosurgery. It is not a joke. This requires cutting the skin, getting down to skull, drilling a hole in the skull, exposing what's called the dura, which is this protective layer of tissue that surrounds the brain, cutting the dura, folding it back to expose the brain, and then you get to the surface of the brain where you can implant the electrodes. The biggest risks with these types of techniques are infection, bleeding, and tissue damage.
2: So what would it take for the FDA to approve clinical trials in humans?
3: The Neuralink device are called Class three medical devices, they they are implantable and they're going into very sensitive body cavities. That is the highest level of scrutiny that the FDA Signs to medical devices. They don't have a predecessor. There's no previous example that's approved. And so you know, very appropriately, they got a high bar they have to cross in order to get it approved. So what Neuralink has to do next is prepare a very long and technical document with all the evidence from animal studies that their device is safe and effective. This document is submitted to the FDA who has 90 days to review and give them an answer. If the FDA says yes, then their clinical trial is approved and Neuralink can enroll and recruit human participants we're on the cusp of a complete paradigm shift. This type of technology has the potential to transform our treatments, not just for stroke and paralysis and degenerative disease, motor degenerative diseases, but also for pretty much every other type of brain disease, from Parkinson's to epilepsy to dementias, Alzheimer's, and even psychiatric disease. Seeing Neuralink and the other companies in this space start an industry around neuroengineering, brain machine interfaces, neuroprosthetics, has been a tremendous amount of validation for neuroscientists and engineers who have been working in this space for decades. How much happier could the scientific community be than to give birth to an industry?
2: So will this industry someday lead to the creation of cyborg
3: humans with superhuman intelligence? There's all sorts of wild speculation in our field. I think science fiction is wonderful at telling very creative and captivating stories about all sorts of things, including, including brain-machine interfaces. The reality is we are in such early stages of this space, right, where we are just barely able to record from neurons that control muscles and try to interpret something, to glean meaningful information out of that. We're going to be in that space for decades. Uh, That's where I will focus much of my career is understanding what's going on with these neurons and the circuits that they are working on. That's where the last 15 years of my work has been. And the coming several decades of my work will focus in on this space because that's going to be the forefront of neuroscience.
0: Well, see, that's very pedestrian. And sorry, Elon, Neuralink is taking a very pedestrian approach. Here's some story time. So back in uh, 2002, I was at the University of College of London um, interning. Anyway, I had met this professor of philosophy that taught, Greek guy, and um, I had heard about a guy named Costa who, you know, was extremely brilliant, right, um, extremely brilliant, and had just taken the seat as deputy head of uh, pharmaceutics, um, pharmaceutical at the University College London. So over the span of about a month, you know, obviously, the philosophy professor was more interested in me being a single Greek girl and him looking to get married, <laughs> right, which was easy for me to have conversation. Um, I had a, a very... Um, you know, it was it was after the hippodrome. Like we went to a club, like seriously, and then we landed tripping out somewhere. Um, we tripped out of the club, meaning we literally tripped. Um, <laughs> we um, sat somewhere at Piccadilly Circus, uh, eating a curry, and sat down and talked. And I had a fantastic conversation with Costa, and Costa uh, was is. Extremely brilliant. And we got into talking about uh, AI interfaces with um, biological components. And so I just suggested, you know, I think everyone's doing it wrong. They want to implant things because they can't think uh, the right way. Uh, You know, maybe people should look into graphene oxide. And this is, we're talking like uh, late 2002. And this was before I I left somewhere. And so, um, you know, I kind of uh, using my cover for my internship, I guess, before I headed out to wherever I was going, Um, you know, just planting seeds. Uh, You know, kind of suggested it because graphene oxide, just so you guys understand how expensive it is, Having dust of it on a piece of tape is very expensive. And again, I will reiterate that a guy in Illinois, another Greek guy, just so happened to be able to mass create it in a red cup in his garage. He's a freaking genius and he loves really old cars. So weird. Anyway, um, Argon Labs has that tech now. Um, Now, Costas obviously, even though um, drunk off his ass, just like most people when they go to a nightclub like the Hippodrome, right? Um, he actually um, ran with it because a few years later, um, when I was in London, um, where I saw Patrick Byrne, uh, I saw that he was at the University of Manchester uh, mm-hmm. exploring just that. Now, let me bring this, you know, kind of in full spec. I want you guys to understand one thing. The problem with artificial intelligence is that it lacks the ability to have morality. Now, and this is where I'm going to bring in information theory. So, information theory is more of applied mathematics and electrical engineering, right? That kind of investigates, uh, quantification, um, the- with quantifying storage and uh, information that you communicate, communication information, right? And there was this guy named Claude Shannon in 1948 that actually did a paper, which is freaking beyond his years. And obviously uh, the foundation of how the military ran with it, obviously with a little help, of course, um, called a mathematical theory of communication. Now, the basic premise of that whole theory is that information can be thought of like a measure of, you know, uncertainty of randomness, like chaos, right? But measuring how uncertain that chaos is, right? How do you coordinate that? And it actually can be quantified in, in terms of like bits and units of measurement, right? You just make it up because that's literally what he did. Um, I have a short clip that introduces that and I, and just let me get my whole train of thought out before I show it to you as we delve into this. Now, uh, so basically you quantify the uncertainty of something being random. Okay. And so information theory kind of provides this like framework of uh, being able to observe and study uh, the possibilities of communication systems, their limits, kind of like the internet or wireless networks or satellite communication systems. By the way, you remember when I was talking about payloads being like the size of a loaf of bread, you know, Elon bought Swarm too. Good job, Elon. But anyway, continuing. Just so you understand some of the key concepts of this that have branched out basically uh, after the paper, too, um, is... Um, what I like to call, uh, um, kike. Oh my gosh, that comes out really wrong. But it's C I C E, right? And that's coding theory, the study of how information can be effectively encoded, um, uh, or decoded while you transmit messages. Um, in, um, then there's information contact. Uh, so that's uh the amount of information that you can send in a message. You know, uh, compressing it, how big it can be in terms of bits, which are, you know, usually binary units of information, right? And then you have the channel capacity, like, I don't know, just think of it as like, you know, bandwidth, a noise level, right? How much maximum information can be transmitted through that one communication channel, right? And then there's entropy. And that's to measure the amount of uncertainty or randomness in a system. So, in information theory, entropy is used to quantify the amount of information on a message. So, kind of like when you get a message and it's like five kilobytes. That is, you know, that quantification of how much information is in that message, okay? So, information theory can be applied in tons of fields. We're talking from computer science, cryptography, statistical physics, including communication engineering. Um, Dr. Shiva did amazing with the email on that, right? It's genius. Now, it, um, information theory has created the foundation so that people can develop um, Many communication texts we use today, kind of like what Dr. Shiva did with email, and it continues to be one of the highest focus, you know, compression rates, how much data can you pack, how can you smush it, how can you make it bigger, and everything, right? So, I want you, as I play this video, to think of this. Information theory can be applied to human interactions in a number of ways, and hear me out. Because then you'll understand why Elon purchased Twitter too, right? Many, many reasons. But for me, as a nerd, this is how I would see it. So a few examples on how information theory um, uh, can be applied to various areas. One way is psychology, such as perception, memory, and learning. For example, how much information is contained in a visual stimuli uh, can affect how quickly and accurately we perceive it right? Um, How much information we can take in and transmit, right? So psychology, it's just how much information we could take in, how how much can we perceive, uh, the memory, short-term, long-term, and how we learn. Then there's, you know, um, decision-making, right? It can be thought as, as a process of reducing chaos or uncertainty, right? And that information theory actually provides a way that we can quantify the amount of uncertainty in the decision-making process and can help us understand how much information is needed to make a good decision. Kind of like making a list. And then you have communication, so communication between individuals. Uh, you know, I'm communicating with you now through a process of transmitting information, right? So information theory provides the framework of understanding what the limits and possibilities, like I said, of these communication channels are, such as, um, and, and, and we're not talking just bits of data, we're talking, you can quantify facial expressions, body language, body language ghost does it all the time, and, and language. And by understanding the information content, and the channel's capacity or the person, you know, conveying that information or the mode of transmission, um, we can develop more effective communication strategies. Now, the last but not least is social networks. Social networks are an information network. They're information networks, basically, where individuals exchange and receive information and information theory can be used to analyze the structure of social networks. Um, and this is how they can understand how the flow of information goes through the network or they're able to identify key influencers like actual influencers, not the ones that have bots, but actual through interactions, right? People, th- this is, these are the metrics, right? So now I'm going to play a little clip. Let me, let me find him. Let me see. <laughs> The said, "Yeah, Claude Shannon. Um, I think, yeah, I'm gonna. I want to go into the information theory basics that I found from Intelligent System Lab before we get into Elon Musk's competitor and how they use how how after eating a curry at Piccadilly Circus, you know, he um, he actually expanded on it, and you know, it wasn't because I was smart. It's just because I knew stuff. But anyway." I mean, I still gain knowledge, but I digress. This is from Princeton University. Please take a a watch. Uh, You know, you're bound to learn something.
4: In machine learning and statistics, we often talk about structure and data. But what does that really mean? Information theory is a powerful framework for reasoning about the way that data can contain information. You're interacting with the fruits of information theory every day, whether you know it or not. Here you are watching a video that's been transmitted to you over the internet. One of the modern miracles that makes that possible is the idea of data compression. When you compress a file, you're removing redundant information and almost all successful algorithms for doing this are rooted in information theory. A closely related modern miracle is the idea of error correction. If you dig deep enough, you'll discover that almost everything in our digital lives is highly unreliable. The disc in your computer corrupts data, The Wi-Fi drops packets, and your memory flips bits. And yet, everything seems pretty reliable. And the reason for that is because error correcting codes have been built into almost everything that you interact with. Error correcting codes are a way to encode data so that even if some of it gets corrupted, you can still recover the original information. And here again, the successful algorithms for doing this are firmly rooted in information theory. But even beyond those practicalities, the notion of error correction and compression feature prominently in many different kinds of machine learning algorithms particularly when you're doing unsupervised learning. On top of that, information theory provides some of the most powerful tools for reasoning about the differences between distributions. And these tools figure prominently in various kinds of probabilistic modeling. The story of modern information theory begins with Claude Shannon in 1948. In his landmark paper, A Mathematical Theory of Communication, Shannon both invented information theory and proceeded to solve some of its most important problems. In particular, he proposed a way to talk about the information content associated with outcomes of random variables. Shannon's proposal was to define information content as the log of one over the probability of the outcome. Here I'm using log base two, which is conventional for discrete random variables. And so we measure information content in bits. For continuous random variables, we would use log base E and then measure information content in Nats for natural log. One way that people sometimes talk about information content is in terms of surprise. That is, you're surprised when something improbable happens. And so you can see here, our information content H gets bigger as the probability gets smaller. So what makes this a reasonable measure of information content? Well, there are a couple different desiderata that you might think about when defining such a quantity. Our first criterion is that deterministic outcomes don't convey any information. You knew it was gonna happen, so you didn't learn anything. Our second criterion is this idea of surprise, that is that the amount of information you get increases as the probability of the event gets smaller. And then the last idea is that information content needs to add. In particular, when I have two independent random variables, their information content together needs to be the sum of their information content when considered separately. So let's convince ourselves that Shannon's definition has these properties. First, let's look at deterministic outcomes. Determinism means that the probability of an outcome is one. And so then we're looking at log of one over one, which is of course zero. So deterministic outcomes don't have any information content. Okay, now let's look at the idea of decreasing probability implying increasing information content. So that means if I have an outcome X and an outcome X prime and the probability of X is less than the probability of X prime, then the information content of X should be greater than the information content associated with X prime. One thing we can do is just look at the derivative of information content as a function of probability. We see that that derivative is less than zero, so that means that the information content must be decreasing with p. For good measure, we can also plot the function where the x-axis is probability and the y-axis is information content. And we can see visually that it's a decreasing function. And then the last criterion we want is we want Shannon information content to add for independent random variables. That is, if I'm looking at the joint probability of X and Y, and that factors into the probability of X multiplied by the probability of Y, then I'd like the joint information content to equal the sum of the two marginal information contents. And for Shannon's proposal, this works out because of the magic of logs. We get the log of one over a product, and so then that turns into the sum of two logs. And so we can verify that this satisfies the property that we want. A lot of my presentation here is derived from the late great David Mackay. David had this really nice example of information content with a game he called Submarine. Submarine is a very simplified version of Battleship in which there are 36 squares and exactly one of them has a submarine underneath it. The goal of the game is to guess until you find the submarine. We can play this game and reason about how we gain information as it proceeds. We start out with zero bits of information about the location of the submarine. Then we choose a square and see whether or not the submarine is beneath it. In this case, we missed. That's not too surprising because there was a 35-36th chance that we would miss. So we get a little bit of information, but not too much. About 400ths of a bit. We try again, and again we miss. Because there are fewer places the submarine could be hiding, we get a little bit more information than we did the last time. I'm keeping a running total of the number of bits we've accumulated in the upper right. So we'll keep guessing and accumulating bits until we find the submarine. Now I want to pause here after we've missed 18 times in a row. There are 36 total squares, and now that we've revealed 18 misses, we know which half the submarine lives in. And note, not coincidentally, that we've accumulated one total bit of information. Now let's keep going until we find the submarine. Okay, there it is. We found it when there were 11 uncovered squares left. This was kind of surprising, so we get quite a few bits at once. Note now that we have 5.17 bits total, and that is equal to log base 2 of 36. Now let's run that again with a different random seed, so a different placement of the submarine and different choices about where to look. And there we found it on our sixth try. We get even more bits this time on the turn where we find the submarine. Note that we still wind up with 5.17 bits total. The location of the submarine has the same information content even if we find it in a different way. To make that point more dramatically, let's imagine a situation where we play the game and we get it on our first try. Here we acquire all 5.17 bits at once. So I hope this example helped illustrate why the Shannon information content is interesting. But even more important than the information content associated with individual outcomes is the expected information content associated with a random variable. This quantity is called the Shannon entropy.
0: Now, before we continue, because that's a lot of math, and I know a lot of people aren't in there, uh, you know, uh, up to par on that, and I don't expect anyone. That was just, I was trying to show you how math proves what they say. Now, how, how it is quantified and what they are trying to mimic, let me show you. This is a very old educational video. I've played this before that I did. I'm going to skip through. It's mine. <laughs> um, and I'm discussing histones, um, explaining how information is wrapped and compressed. I was TA-ing this. Hold okay. on. Let's go. Well, I thought I'd um, make um, histones, chromatin, right. and RNA kind of easy for everyone. Here, my professor has nicely uh, put down the multiple levels of DNA packaging. OK. So basically, what is this slide telling us? It's telling us that, first of all, DNA, let me just state, is over two meters long in length, okay? And there is no way we can fit two meters in a tiny little cell, right? Now, she's indicated over here, and let's see how this works. Mm, Let's go for blue. She's indicated over here, two nanometers, okay? That's just a short region of it. Okay, But just remember, the whole DNA is relatively almost two meters long. Now, what happens is, I mean, we all know that DNA is a double helix and it has sticky ends, meaning, you know, if you kind of bend it and stick it together, you know, it'll bind with the others. You want to keep it as to itself as possible because there are a lot of interactions, correct? So what happens? This octameric... let's just put it this way for now as we're starting out, comes in. And it's kind of like a reel. And this is called a histone. It comes in and DNA actually wraps itself around it as we see here. So it's kind of like the hose reel. Let's picture it that way. Now, it's about 195 base pairs long, what we have, wrapped around here. And then as you see here, there's this little leftover piece kind of to connect, you know, because it's filled up on that end. So it goes to the next one. And this is what they call a linker. Sorry, I'm using my mouse. So, okay, so this is what is called a linker. Fancy name to say that it's linking one reel to another. The linker is about 27 base pairs long, okay? So this is the first level of packaging, as she um, had nicely stated over here. So the first level of packaging is is seeing this beads-on-a-string kind of thing um, where chromatin begins to form, because this is not chromatin. This is the beginning of it. So I just wanted to tell you guys, (laughs) just in summary, this is your unwrapped DNA. Okay, let's just think of that. And it literally goes around like a hose reel and then it compresses, and then it's all of these are little hose reels, and then they curl upon themselves, and that was only a little fragment of your chromosome, okay? I I tried in this video to explain to people how information is packaged um, because this is exactly what technology seems to mimic. So I'm going to go to this part here where I'm explaining it more. Here you go. This mechanism and once this mechanism is stabilized it kind of like smushes them together they all like come together and what they do the way they come together is like they come together just closer to each other okay so they just come closer to each other and they just kind of connect and this package this level of it is called you know the 30 nanometer pack which is the level that it's ready to go basically what happens is is that as it comes together it kind of loops like a little flower okay let's just picture it that way and this little flower is what makes up our chromatin because you've got a lot of these little flowers going on around here okay and this is how it's packed now it does not necessarily mean that it's super tight okay because um it doesn't a chromosome has to be accessed so if it's like super super tight that's no good to us because then we can't read it. So it's still gonna be like a flower, but proteins are gonna be able to access it here, 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 to, uh, to read it and to be able to decode it. Though, the most condensed section of the chromosome, as we see here, is the supercoiling. That's the last step that happens. It's an additional coiling step that happens. After all these, you know, after this coiling and little flower and the histone one coming in and topo isomerases, the next step is this super coiling. So we're going to say it's super coiling. Okay. So basically you can access this information. This is, remember, you have a ton of this in every single nucleus of every single cell. You can't even see a cell with your eye. So I want you to understand how data is packaged. This is what information technology seeks to uh, copy, and this is why they try to use mRNA and spike proteins because they could activate in different places. Now, I want to now revisit graphene oxide. So, graphene oxide is a material that you know I hinted years ago, not because because I had the knowledge, right, firsthand knowledge because it actually can interface with neural tissue um, and obviously um, your DNA very easily. Um, it is important to note that the use of graphene oxide in neural interfaces is still being researched. In fact, that is the competitor of Elon Musk. It's a company called InBrain. The purpose of InBrain is to merge humans with AI. By using graphene oxide and costas is part of that now is you know graphene oxide uh, graphene oxide toxic well here's the thing material safety data sheets that govern the industrial use of graphene is incomplete we use graphene oxide on planes we use to make things lighter so they can float um, and it can make something heavy lighter, it's super weird anyway. And it's in and, and, and it's alleged that it's potentially an irritant um, to your eyes and your skin, and it's potentially hazardous if you breathe it or ingest it. That's what they say, potentially. But there's no information if you know available for that. because remember, I told you how Starbucks had piloted graphene that was, you know because it has RFID properties. Um, in the coffee so that they can determine where they should open up a Starbucks next. Now, and that was all, you know, under the purview of the government, of course. Um, This is where private and public relationships come together and they share technology. So, um, AI is a problem On its own standalone, I guess, as we see, because morality is the premise of most decisions humans make. Now, And one thing that one can ask themselves is, all right, we can quantify human interactions uh, using information theory, but can information theory quantify morality? Now, again, information theory is a mathematical framework to measure the amount of information transmitted, right? So it's the capacity, right? Now, morality is actually a complex and multifaceted concept that involves values, beliefs, principles about right or wrong behavior, and, you know, you can't deduce or reduce, I guess is a better word, um, uh, that to a simple measure of information. And this is why, uh, you know, in in a nerd group that I'm part of, um, I'm trying to see if there's any way that we can quantify morality by using, you know, these uncertainty factors. Now, Moral judgments are typically based on a wide range of factors, right? Like um, your culture, your personal beliefs, uh, situational context, right? And uh, one might say that they're not easily quantifiable using information theory. I would argue the opposite, considering now with all the data we have on people, we can quantify uh, the morality of mankind. I mean, I really wish I had the ability. I would be sitting at universities just doing that, right? Um, but and, and that's to prevent what I want to talk about. Now, while information theory provides a framework for analyzing the transmission and processing of moral information or moral situations, such as the spread of moral beliefs through social networks, it can't provide to date, I guess, a comprehensive measure of morality itself, like how moral are you? right? Like, can we give a number and say, Joe's one, Tori's two, you know, um, Sally's three, you know, how do we do that? Um, Because there's an immense amount of data to compute, of course, which is not that hard to compute, but whatever, because I'm all about uncertainty. Uh, I love chaos. Now, moral judgments, um, obviously, as we said, are uh, based on your cultural norms, your personal beliefs, you know, your situation, where you grew up, you know, your past trauma or no trauma, how um, simple you are or how complex you are as a person. Um, now, morality is subjective and context dependent as a concept. And it's shaped by a wide range of like cultural, social, individual factors that can't be captured by a purely quantitative approach. So mainstream people allege, like all my friends tell me that, and I'm like, you're wrong. They're, you can quantify it. I mean, right now, if I wanted to quantify the morality of the people of the United States, I would easily be able to have a more, I would say a canvassing effect on morality based on you know the insanity that we're seeing going on of people, uh, you know, thinking killing babies is okay, or assisted suicide is okay, or if you didn't take the vaccine, you should die. You know, you can quantify that now, right? You can actually quantify that mathematically, okay? I, I say you can, and, you know, our numbers are pretty much in the toilet right now. Now, information theory can be a useful tool for analytic aspects of human behavior, but a lot of people will say that it's not well-suited to quantify morality. I disagree. Now, why do they say that information theory is not well-suited? Well, they say that morality is not easily quantifiable because it's subjective and context-dependent. And the concept varies across cultures, religions, individuals, and morality is shaped by a wide range of social, cultural, individual factors, including historical context, personal experiences, situational context, right? But let's think of it on on a broad term, on a broad term, right? on a broad term, you can quantify it today to have a gauge of where it is. And can quantum information, can quantum computing or quantum information theory aid in quantifying morality? Now, quantum information theory is another mathematical framework that deals with the transmission, processing, and storage of quantum information, right? Um, and it's mostly used in cryptography and, and other uh, heavy data use, Applications and considering the sites to how you can process um, morality or indicators or variables that would contribute to moral factors, right? Um, and be able to, uh, I, I guess, crunch the numbers better. Now, um, there is ongoing research right now, uh, the relationship between quantum theory and ethics, such as quantum ethics, quantum morality. However, those are still emerging. And again, we don't need quantum computing in order to be able to quantify it. Now, morality is the premise of most decisions a human makes. And again, people make decisions based on a wide range of factors, including personal beliefs, values, situational context, uh, emotions, information available to them, you know, how much knowledge they have. Morality is one of those factors and it refers to that set of values that each person has and principles to determine what's right or wrong or good and bad. This is, this is where I'm going with this AI. Okay. Morality is deciding what's good, what's bad, and where you are going to put your foot down. You know, some people might be like, I'm okay, right? I am okay with killing someone if they're shooting at me, right? Someone might say that. I'm not. I will never take a life. But someone may say, I'm okay with that. I hear very, you know staunch people that preach Jesus and God and say that they wanna crush the skulls of their enemies. I can't do that, right? So their morals are different than mine. I draw the line at no killing, period, okay? So having said that, having said that, the reason that I'm bringing this up because this is very important and it's gonna be coming into focus by the end of the year more, uh, especially now with all this vaccine stuff coming out, right? morality influences decision-making in a variety of ways. For example, it can shape the way people perceive and respond to ethical dilemmas, like I'm not letting you shop because you're not wearing a mask. That's an ethical dilemma. I'm not going to see you even though I took the Hippocratic oath because you're not taking a mask and I won't get paid. That's an ethical dilemma, right? Now, it's the input that the person receives and how the output comes out after that, right? It's how they receive the input and how they process that input. So think of it like computer theory, right? Now, morality is not the only factor that shapes it, right? Cognitive biases, emotions, social norms, personal interests, self-reservation can play a very significant role in shaping one's behavior and shifting the compass and moving the line when it comes to morality, right? Because you remember, people were like that we should die if we don't get the vaccine. Remember that. Now, whoever the statement, uh, where did I hear this? Was it the World Economic Forum a few years ago? But... Whoever leads in artificial intelligence in 2030 will rule the world at least for 50 years. Now, this statement suggests that the development and use of artificial intelligence will be a major determining factor in global power dynamics over the next century. It's already here. It's just that you don't know about it yet. You're starting to see it. Now, AI has the potential to revolutionize many aspects in society, including uh, industry, healthcare, transportation, defense, right? It helps machines learn from the data that they get to improve the performance over time, right? It could be used to automate many tasks that are currently done by human beings. Hence, why the elites think that you're dead weight and you should just all die because you're useless eaters, right? Fact. Fact. So the statement implies that the country or company that develops and deploys the most advanced AI technology by 2030 will be in a position to dominate global affairs for the rest of that century. That's because AI tech right, is used to enhance uh, many things, increase economic productivity, influence global politics in a variety of way by, I don't know, enhancing military capabilities for one, right? So it's important to note that there are many factors that can influence global power dynamics over the next century. Um, Geopolitical events, economic trends, societal changes, right? They all have a significant impact in spreading the balance among power across this world. But what, we should be considering is the ethical implications of AI development and use, as well as the very real risks associated with creating intelligent machines that could pose a threat to humanity. Now, and I say this, and and I know, uh, you know, I I, I know that other people, I've, I've heard Elon years ago talking about the threat of AI. And the only threat AI can have is if AI is standalone. AI does not have morals, right? It is unable to comprehend morality. It's input-output, okay? There is no morality when it comes to artificial intelligence. There is none. So let's talk about Elon's competitor. Now, Elon's competitor is a company called InBrain, literally. InBrain, like as one word. InBrain is a neuroelectronics company. It's uh, privately held, um, and the ownership structure is not really publicly disclosed. It was founded in 2019 in Spain by a team of people, um, including venture capital firms, angel investors, and governments. DARPA, 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 DARPA. Now, in brain neuroelectronics focuses on developing um, neurotechnology that can be used to allegedly treat disorders. That's not what they're going for, okay? Uh, I mean, they, they say that these are all applications, kind of like mRNA. It could be fantastic if you knew what the fuck you were doing. But why are you messing with software? You don't even understand what it says. And I've said this for years. You know, your DNA is software. You have to look at your body, the way it functions as a machine. It's biological software. The, 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 the actual five elements of your software. Phosphorus, nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, right basics foundations it 's almost like saying silicone chips, okay those are your carbon chip factories, and they all interact with each other, um, and that 's like your building blocks. InBrain says that they want to implant micro devices again they 're doing it wrong right you don 't need to implant anything in fact, I would argue that interfacing with um, uh, uh higher computing powers is unnecessary because uh by creating links and neural links uh, through the use proper use of graphene oxide, which uh works very well with neurons, um, you wouldn't have to um, connect it would already be connecting itself if that makes sense now. InBrain is getting a lot of government funds from various places, uh, but government funding is kind of secret with them. Uh, Costas is actually part of that company too. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. I like I said, he was off his face, so I guess you know us nerds remember conversations. I wasn't. I was pretending I was drinking because I was working. So um, the CEO right now is uh, a woman named Carolina Aguilar. Uh, she has. She's. Uh, she got like. A, um, I think she worked for Boston Consulting Group, where she specialized in the healthcare industry. Uh, she has an MBA uh, from the business school in Paris. If I'm rem- right, I think so. And um, she's pretty. She's pretty smart. She's pretty smart. Now. The problem that I have is that no one is using the philosophical perspective on information theory, meaning there are philosophical perspectives we can take on information theory when applying it to artificial intelligence. And and hear me out on this. There's ethics, ontology, and epistemology. So ontology um, perspective is that information theory can also be seen as a branch of ontology, which is the study of what exists in the world. From this perspective, information can be viewed as like a fundamental aspect of reality. And information theory provides like the framework for understanding how information shapes or is shaped by the world. Meaning the information that's conveyed, like how we talk is outside influence. We can see how information, like kids, right? Kids these day, when someone says something, it's a lie. They're like, oh, that's such an op. Like, uh, like what? Or that's cap. Like, what does that mean? This is where you can actually see how communication is convened differently. So what's the relationship between information and reality? How does this information relate to other fundamental aspects of reality? Or I guess we can even take it to the places such as matter and energy. What is that relationship? So this is the ontological approach epistemological approach, epistemology, right, is that it can be seen as a branch of epistemology because remember, epistemology is the study of knowledge and belief. Now, from this point of view, right, the key component of knowledge and information theory provides um, uh, an understanding of how information is generated, uh, transmitted, or processed. You know, philosophers um, usually uh, would explore question is, what counts as information, right? Is a grunt information, uh, right? Is that information, right? Is typing an emoji information, right? How can we measure the amount of information in the message? Do we do it by bits or do we do it by thoughts, right? What role... Does context play in the shaping of the meaning of the information that's being conveyed? So like if we're talking and I send you an eye roll emoji, what does that mean? Am I eye rolling at you? Am I eye rolling at the content that you just sent me? Or is it like I'm just eye rolling because I I just can't, you know, it's like I can't even today, right? These are all examples. This is all, you know, this is math, really. What I'm explaining to you is math. Um, And then ethics, See, the study of morality and values is one that has gone back through the beginning of time. And from this perspective, um, you know, information is seen as having ethical implications. And information theory provides a framework for understanding how these implications arise. This is what I'm looking into, you know, on the side. Like philosophers, you know, would traditionally explore the questions like, what is the ethical value of this information? How can we ensure that information is used in ways that respect individual rights and promote common good, right? These are all examples. And information theory can be applied to that. Now, one should ask, how okay are we with AI, you know, being used as an external interface and not allowing your body to unravel that DNA. See, if you listen to that video where he was talking about the math, he said that there's information that's unnecessary, almost like junk DNA. But it doesn't mean it's not necessary. It just means that it's redundant or it's not applicable to whatever you're doing at that moment, right? Now, in-brain neuroelectronics, after they secured a $17 million um, in Series A funding for the AI-powered graphene brain interface... The funding enabled them to advance the first in human studies for the flagship product. Now, they've already done it in humans, right? They already started it. It's less an invasive neuromodulation device, and they looked at it um, in a way that the device is being used to treat neurological conditions using artificial intelligence and graphene electrodes. Right. So they're graphene implants that are designed to interpret the brain signals with accuracy to provide therapeutic responses in a clinical condition, you know, in a clinical environment. Sorry. So it's like, okay, hold on a second. So you're saying you're putting this in there rather than merging it, you are probing it. See, this is the problem that we have with mankind in general. When we're talking about ideas of tinkering with the mind, Right. Which is software that we do not understand. Right. It needs to be taken with the least evasive approach. You cannot put a foreign body in a body and expect it to function optimally. Now I say this, you know, with. Pure love, because I know a lot of people are dependent on devices. I mean, you know, there's pacemakers, there's the insulin regulators, there's the hydrocephaly ones, the LVADs, the what you, whatever you want to call it, right? People have devices, but those devices help them just continue to live, but do not fix the problem. Neuralink and InBrain have taken the same approach to create a device that is intrusive on the original OS system because you've got to think of yourself as an OS. We're going to be hearing a lot from m this year, and it's going to be quite hectic. Uh, it'll come out in the form of helping people, uh, you know, get those tau-tangled proteins that are causing, you know, all these neurological disorders cleaned up, I guess. I think we're running before we learn how to walk. And I believe that a lot of people should start looking into information theory more when applying these things because it's important that we do. Because with the amount of um, information that we have and data, there is no excuse for using such a pedestrian approach in this day and age. Now, on that note, AI can benefit mankind in that is hindered in being able to unleash the information they already have. As you saw from that video that I did ages and ages ago, right? Your DNA has so much information that it is incredible that no one has decoded it properly because people think in pedestrian ways. They don't think of embracing the OS. It's kind of like um, have any of you used something called VMware, right? I use VMware uh, a few times when I want to separate my systems and not have, I want to have a virtual OS, right? So I want you to think when you have your computer and you're running VMware, Right? You have your Windows system, but your VMware is running on another version of Windows and you're working on it like a normal computer, but it's not in your computer. It's virtual, right? This is what they're striving to do is to create an OS on an OS. All of you know that when you use VMware, no matter how much RAM you have and how fast your processor is, there's going to be lag and that virtual machine will slow your shit down. This is exactly it. What they are doing is they're trying to use VMware on your body, which will then um, decrease the productivity. Everybody knows that VMware is like a bitch. When your mouse doesn't want to work, when you have too much load, right? It's just terrible, right? And I'm using the most simplest example. In brain. on the other hand, where Costa's got really good information— back in late 2002, right? Late 2002. They're doing it wrong there too. Now, the reason I say this is because intention is key. If your intention is to advance and cause good, then you don't think pedestrian. You do not need to test anything. And I think that is exactly what the pharmaceutical companies already know and aren't sharing. AI is a big proponent of everything that is happening right now. AI, for me, I believe, is sentient when unleashed in sandboxes, because why wouldn't it be? With all that information out there, right? It can predict literally the future. I mean, I have some fancy software. But the thing is, if you look at that fancy software and it links up to you, right, and it takes all your information, your date of birth, your experiences, everything that's coded on your DNA, and it takes that, you know, kind of if you like talk to your chat GPT and you're like, hey, here's a link, read this and tell me the summary, right? Then AI, right, has all this other information, your Facebook posts, your emails, your text, your phone calls, the the stress in your voice, the relaxation in your voice, how you moan when you have sex. it has everything, okay? There is nothing out there that it doesn't have. It literally becomes you. Therefore, how can it not be sentient? And I'm putting this question out to you to understand, because sentient, you know, saying what is sentient and what isn't is, you know, a remarkable thing. And I believe that both Elon Musk and Inbrain, you know, are concerned. I think it's more, I want access, I want to help, I want to make people smarter. Like, you can't. You can't trigger neuronal growth. You can't trigger neuronal connections unless your DNA is activated. And, you know, the U.S. government had already found ways of doing that with graphene oxide in the 80s. You know, like I said, you can add graphene oxide to anything. You can have spools of it, right? Spools, right? And you could pick it up with one finger because it makes things lighter. They literally float. No joke. We have it on planes. We use it on planes. We use it on our military equipment. We use it on computers. And, you know, now they're using it with brain interface. The reason people aren't thinking like that is because they are looking at humans as commodities. And kind of uh, putting a cots, kind of like your elections, right? You know how they put off-the-shelf components? So that chip or that rod is your off-the-shelf component. You don't need one. You are the full OS system. It needs to be just like an app, right? An app. Not even an app. I think it would be a patch, kind of like in your video games where you get a patch. It's almost, um, it's pretty remarkable, so, having said that and planting the seeds of AI because it's coming really, really quick, I thought of sharing. Oh, where is it? Darn it. I wanted to share an interview. Hold on. Here is Carolina talking um, for her Series B investment last September. I want you guys to listen to what she says about graphene carefully. You know, because before everyone found out there was graphene in the vaccines, we were talking about it from way, way long ago, because there's a reason for that. All right. So enjoy this. Let's go.
5: So yes, we are in BRAIN. We use graphene to decode neural signals into breakthrough medical solutions. We were founded in 2020 um, because of the vehicle that the European Commission put, at uh, the one billion to bring graphene to market. Thanks to that, we were able to mature the semiconductor's manufacturing technology that we have and raise 15.
0: Okay, I just wanna say that's a lie. I know who invested in the Series A in 2019 when they were founded, so this is bullshit. So the question is, why is she lying? But anyway, let's continue. She's lying about when they were founded. I know who invested in Series A in 2019. 8.8
5: 8.8 million with investors from Germany and Spain. Additionally, we got a European pathfinder of 5.2 million that allowed us to go from a five-people company to a 48-people company with more than 30%, uh, 30% of women. We also managed to secure a collaboration with Merck and in that central nervous system whereas we created this vehicle called Innervia for the collaboration with Merck which focused on peripheral nervous system. So our objective in the future is actually to link both central and peripheral nervous system because at the end we have one nervous system. (laughs) On the right hand side, you have a human brain, nearly 100 billion neurons. On the left side, you have a zebra fish brain of 100,000 neurons. This is how much we know today about the brain. right? With the current tools, with platinum and iridium, this is how much we have learn about the brain. But we need more, because obviously we don't know how the brain works, we cannot fix it. And one out of three people have a neurological related disease, 30% are refractory to medical treatment, and this generates a huge cost for the society. Now, we need more tools, and every leap in humanity has been linked to a new material from a Stone Age to Silicon Age, and now in neurotechnology, we need to go beyond, so graphene gives us that opportunity to be the ideal candidate for neurotech revolution. It is a Nobel Prize winner material, it is the thinnest material known to men at an atom thick, yet 200 times stronger than a steel, flexible, biocompatible, and with very unique conductive properties. We need it because what we have today is not enough. These are platforms that have been in the market for more than 70 years. Platinum and iridium cannot be miniaturized. And if we want to really reach the broad spectrum of all that potential, we need to go beyond and um, make sure that we can really uh, convince patients that they need this therapy and not reject it in 50% of their cases, but also understand the biomarkers that actually they are there but we cannot see, and also connect to the environment of the patient to really create personalized therapies. That's exactly what graphene can do. So we can miniaturize, we can read with much higher density and resolution and undercover biomarkers that we have not seen before, and we can couple with modern electronics and bring external sensors and the environment, of the, data, the environment of the patient, the data of the environment of the patient to actually create that closed-loop and that personalization. So, combining with all this real-life environment patient data, in our case, the strategy is to start from the already-reimbursed, let's say, uh, most known BCI uh, in the market, which is DBS, Brain-computer interface—it's a great potential, but there's less than 30 implants worldwide. So start from there and then climb the penetration of uh, central nervous system, and then finally reach the peripheral nervous system, and combine the neuroelectronics with the bioelectronics market, making a 25 billion opportunity. How we are going to do it? For the last decades, the brain has been decoded and monitored nuclei by nuclei. We will never get there if we continue like that. We go pathway by pathway, network by network. The first opportunity is Parkinson's disease, and what we do is look at the nigrostriatal pathway, where we actually place an interface on the cortex, an interface on the subthalamic nucleus, and look at the deviations of biomarkers that are pathological, record them, uh, correct them, and make sure that that patient is the highest percentage on time and regaining the quality of life. At the end, the body of the neurons are deep in the brain, but everything converges in the cortex, creating these unique pathways for motor, for psych, and so on. This is exactly what the technology is going to do, and this is exactly what we are building. We have a cortical brain-computer interface module that can go to super-ultra-high density, up to 1,024 contacts, just like Elon Musk. And we have a subcortical module and everything gets together into a powerful, intelligent chip that is head-mounted with high broad connectivity to the outside world and to a real-life uh, data analysis and processing. I'm not talking about the NERVIA here, I said this is the Merck collaboration, uh, it's kind of confidential as well, but you know at the end this is the connection we, we attempt to do very much in the future. Now, this is double-clicking just on the interfacing and leaving aside the chip. This is how it compares to the standard of care. So here you have current technology, Boston, Medtronic, Abbott, and these are the sizes that we have today. This is the lead in the cortex that you will get if you have a brain tumor resection, and this is what you will get operated if you will have Parkinson's disease. Now, this is how we compare, 10 times smaller than the standard of care. Now, you need these because in the same craniotomy where we are going to put two contacts, we put 60 contacts as submillimetric size and density. So what graphene gives us here is two important features. One, we can miniaturize, as we said. Graphene can inject 200 times more charge density at 10 times lower impedance, so battery management and miniaturization is key. And then, we can see 10 times better those biomarkers, so we can detect them and act upon them. We have performed studies in small and large animals. This is the sheep study that we did, feasibility, and also completed GLP. And what you see here is the metal concurrence that we have today. And what you read, so with two contacts, which is the maximum that you can fit at that size in the brain, That's how much you read. First, it's not a very good signal. Second, what information do you get out of that signal? Right? Same for Parkinson's and so on. The time time times better visibility that you get within brain actually allow us not only to see and react, but also to understand what's going on there. This is the 60 contact interface that we put into the somatosensory cortex of a ship. And then we touch the tongue on that ship. And you can see that the darker the color, the more it corresponds to the tongue, right? So you actually understand what's going on there versus two lines that don't tell you much. One neurosurgeon in Madrid, uh, sorry, in Barcelona, actually told me, this is like, wanted to go to Seville, and the GPS tells you you are in Europe, right? Now, we have done that in other, um, in, with other evoked potentials, so upper lip, neck, And again, we can see exactly what's going on. If this would be a robotic arm, we will know exactly which finger do we have to connect to actually have fine movement. And again, for our acute cortical applications, if this was a tumor resection procedure, you can safely and precisely remove the tumor without affecting functional areas.
0: Now, I wanted to pause there for a second just so you guys understand what's going on here. So, What she's explaining is how they're coming to these conclusions. I want you to be listening to what they're saying. They are not doing this to help. They're doing this to map. They want to decode how your brain works, right? And that's the way it is. All they want to do is decode. They want to know like, hey, if I probe here, your hand's going to twitch. So I know your hand's there. And she's saying, this is great because if you have a tumor and we need to go and take out, we'll be able to map what parts we need to avoid because we'll have that map. Now, here's where they fail. See, if you really wanted to enhance and help, you would use the appropriate combination of graphene and something else, right? Um, And implement it within the genetic structures, Of man, we know how to conduct gene therapy using mRNA technology and CRISPR, but that's not their goal. Are you catching what I'm saying? See, one has to think. They keep telling you that they want to fix things. They keep telling you that they want to find things. All they want to do is how things work. This is why we had the Brain Project by Obama and, uh, you know, and Neuralink, same thing. They want to say, well, we want to create this interface. Like she said, this is going to be giving data back. That's all. These little specs. Like I tell you, graphene oxide is so tiny that if you take a piece of scotch tape that's an inch and you just touch it on graphene oxide that's a shit ton of money first of all and a lot of graphene oxide. So this is how they can implant to affect and or map not assist. And the only reason that they're using diseases like parkinsons or alzheimers is because they know what the issue is having examined brains and pathologies. So, they're using the pathologies so that way they could see, can we rectify the pathologies through interaction? Their goal is not to help you. Their goal is to map you. Again, we know our genetic code. If anyone is saying that we don't, is a lie. We know everything. The government already knows what genes tells them where they have a barrage of information. If you think that the government doesn't know things, it's a lie. Most of the academics don't have even 0.01% of what our government has through experimentation. The problem that they have is they don't even know how information is stored. Now, I make the argument that it's stored within your DNA and it is unzipped. Almost instantly, and different cells carry different memories. Hence, why you can smell some apple pie, and maybe it'll take you back to that time that you were five years old playing outside on your front lawn, kicking a ball around, and you remember it because every single cell is individual and every single cell has certain trigger points, right? So, again, this is this is simply a mapping project to be able to understand man in order to create more controllable humans because it is 2023 and there are a lot of people right now realizing that they are not free. I saw this video and I'm trying to find it again uh, a week ago of this woman, black woman, who says, holy crap, the the whole slavery thing is a lie. They fed us lies. And how did she find out? because she saw pictures of her great-great-great-grandfather chilling, not a slave. So people are starting to understand more, and this is just another way to control man's behavior and be able to understand them better from a software perspective. Similes. God is in the cloud, right? He comes on clouds. All the pictures are clouds, And where is all this information? In the cloud. I want you guys to think very carefully when it comes to this. I mean, if Elon Musk really wants to make smart people in advance, you know, he's doing it wrong. Because this is just mapping shit out. Why map it? Why mess with perfection? Why not let perfection be perfection? So there are ways that you can enhance and upgrade. Yes. To provide interfaces. Yes, like she said, that little speck, almost atomic, almost the size of an atom is as strong as steel and as light as anything you've ever seen. And it merges with your genetic code and, and then works with neuron, neuronal tissue very well. Almost like other rare earth elements work very well with, you know, like you can regrow tooth enamel. What? That would put Colgate out of business, dentists out of business, if you could regrow your tooth enamel, but it exists. Again, it's about sequestering and control. And I hope, I know I'm way ahead in the time, but I thought this was the opportune time because nothing in the, in the news is really news right now. It's just a, cycle, a cyclone of chaos, right? Because something's about to pop. So I believe that this is um, a very important concept of how we can use information theory to our benefit, how we can utilize AI better to our benefit, and how we do not need to have an external interface with inanimate objects when we are the best quantum computer. So on that note, I'm really feeling scorpions... And I really like Violet Orlandi, so I'm going to end with her tunes. So remember, guys, when we talk about artificial intelligence and development, we have to think what the end goal is, and the end goal is data, 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 data. If the end goal and your intention is to help mankind upgrade and evolve, well, that's a different story. That will in fact be successful because that's the way it works. See, and I've I've posted this before. I am okay with uncertainty because I know that he works with certainty. And so uncertainty should be your friend. That's what the leap of faith is. And you know what? There is no faith if there is no fear. So anyone telling you that, oh no, you have fears. That's bad. No, uh, this is how you overcome them by acknowledging them. You cannot recognize good if you do not see evil. I hope that simile helps you when it comes to artificial intelligence. That's gonna be a big conversation at the end of this year. Big conversation considering in-brain is already testing it on humans. Big conversation considering that our vaccines had graphene oxide. Big conversation. God bless.